The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Michael Pettis, who is a real expert when it comes to China's economy, has written several books as well, which we'll touch on. But Michael, before we get too deep into talking about China, introduce yourself as far as who you are, how'd you get involved in learning about China, and how how you view China currently. Sure. Thanks very much for speaking to me on the topic. My background is really a Wall Street background. After I, I got my、uh, MBA from Columbia, I went to work for the street, mostly specializing in the fixed income side of emerging markets. So I worked at、uh, first Boston, J.P. Morgan, Bear Stearns, where I ran fixed income trading and capital markets desks, focusing on emerging markets, which at the time was you know eighty percent Latin America. By the end of the '90s and the beginning of the 2000s, I was getting a little bit bored. When I when I started, everything in Latin America was very new, and you know you sort of had to reinvent the wheel constantly. But but after about a decade or so, it had become a very cookie cutter part of Wall Street, and I decided to move to either India or China, two big economies about which I knew not a whole lot. And I figured during the last nine years, I'd been while working, I'd been teaching at the, the Columbia Business School and at the School of International Affairs, and so I thought maybe I could wangle that into a, a teaching job. Spend two years in China teaching would give me a great chance to learn about the country, and then in, in, in good Wall Street. But that didn't work. It, it was extremely interesting. So I moved to China in 2002, and two years later, I decided to extend it for a few more years, and 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 I kept doing that until now. Twenty years later, I've been living in China throughout this entire period. During this time, I've been I've taught at one or the other of the top two schools in China, and I do a lot of you know the, the typical consulting work that the ex Wall Street guys always find themselves doing. And here I am. I'm curious, Mike, how different do you think life would have been had you chosen India as opposed to to China? Because obviously they're the two very different countries, two very different cultures, but certainly two economic powerhouses. Have you sort of looked back and and wondered how different life would have been? Yeah, you know, they always say the secret of success on Wall Street is is to be lucky rather than smart, and and, and I was pretty lucky. I don't know why I chose China rather than India. I mean, I know why there are a bunch of different reasons, but it could have gone either way. But the timing turned out to be incredibly lucky. I, I went to China just as 
they joined the WTO, and we saw that astonishing expansion in Chinese growth. The other thing that I think that I was very lucky in is I had no idea of this at the time, but most of the economists focusing on China, whether they're Chinese or foreign, seem to know very little outside of China. They may know something about, you know, the last 10 or 15 years in the U.S., but they had very little understanding of development economics, of financial history, of economic history. And as a result, they believed something which from the very beginning I knew wasn't true. And that is they thought what China was going through was this completely unique, sui generis experience that we had never seen this before. And, you know, from working in Latin America, and, and I'm sort of a financial history junkie, I knew that that was not the case. We've seen this growth model many times before, never taken to the extreme that China took it. But it's a growth model about which we know quite a lot. And I think that gave me a, a certain advantage in that and, and my developing country experience gave me a certain advantage in understanding China that I think other economists might not have had. All right. So let's let's talk about that growth model for a moment. You know, most of the audience here during this space is going to be focused in the U.S. And, you know, I think the, the media doesn't really quite fully explain the way China's engine works. So talk about what is that growth model? What is it comparable to? And what are some of the pitfalls? Well, I, I sometimes call it the Gershenkron model because Alexander Gershenkron, a Ukrainian-American economist who was very active in the 60s and 70s, described it quite well. And other times I call it the high savings, high investment model because that's literally what it is. But what Gershenkron argued, you know, looking at the history of the United States and other developing countries at the time, that, you know, the history of developing countries, he noticed, and it's no big surprise, we all know this, that developing countries tend to have very high investment needs. Of course, they're developing economies. And they also tend to have very low savings because income is, tends to be pretty widely distributed and the countries are relatively poor. So these were countries whose investment was constrained by the lack of domestic savings. And so you look at the United States in the 19th century, we depended very heavily on foreign savings, primarily British and Dutch savings, to boost our domestic investment. So we ran current account deficits almost every year of the 20th century, which is another way of saying that we imported foreign capital. And that allowed us a higher investment rate than, than otherwise. But Gershenkron also pointed out that this is very risky because every time England hiccuped, the U.S. got into trouble. When you rely on foreign savings for your domestic investment needs, you know, there's a lot of risk associated with that. So his argument was the, the way certain countries had gotten around it, and particularly he was focusing on the Soviet Union in the 1930s, but you could also Germany too, was that they forced up the domestic savings rate. Now, how do you force up the domestic savings rate? We hear a lot of nonsense about savings. Countries like Germany and Japan and China have high savings rates because they are culturally attuned towards thriftiness. And countries like Spain or the United States have low savings because of, again, cultural reasons. And that's all nonsense. What ends up happening is that different parts of the economy save at different rates and consume at different rates. Saving is, is you know, income minus consumption. 
And it turns out that ordinary people, the workers in the middle class, consume most of their income and by definition save a very low share. Rich people save a lot. Businesses save all of their income and governments save most of their income. They consume a little bit on behalf of people. So what ends up happening is that as you shift income among these various groups, you affect the rates. So countries like Japan, Germany, China, South Korea, the Netherlands, etc., all of these countries with very high savings rates, you'll notice that in every case, the household sector retains a relatively low share of GDP. In the case of China, the lowest share in history. And so if people retain a very low share of what they produce, not surprisingly, they consume a very low share of what they produce and everything else of savings. So the, the, the point Gershon Krohn made is that if you want a high savings rate, this is really about the distribution of income. Now, I don't know if you had a question there, Michael, or, or whether I should continue. Yeah, yeah, no, continue. I've got a few questions based on that, but continue with that. Okay, so what Gershon Krohn then argued is that if you can force up the domestic savings rate by, by reducing that, the share retained by ordinary households, then you can fund domestic investment with domestic savings. But you still need to do a bunch of things. You need to concentrate the savings domestically within the banking system. And then you need some mechanism, and it's usually government control of the banking system, that forces banks to lend into investment. So you have high savings, and through the domestic banking system, you have high investment. Now, is this a good model or is it a bad model? And, and, and the answer, which should be the answer to every question in economics, is it depends on the underlying condition. So consider China in, in, when, this, you know, when they began these reforms in the 1980s, had gone through 50 years of anti-Japanese war, civil war, and Maoism. So they were hugely underinvested. They had no subways. They had four commercial airports in the whole country, a terrible train system, no highways, no manufacturing capacity, et cetera, et cetera. So what they needed above all was to increase their investment rate. And this model was great at doing that. Every country that's followed it has had very high investment. And at first, that investment is really productive. And so the economy grows really rapidly. And even though households, their income share is suppressed, because income is growing so rapidly, i.e. GDP is growing so rapidly, they still do quite well out of this model. So every country that's followed this model has had this period of very you know, spectacular, healthy growth. The problem is that at some point, if you have very high growth levels of investment, you reach a point where you're no longer to you're no longer able to absorb all of that investment productively. And every country that followed this model reached that point. And when you reach that point, in theory, the high the high investment growth model should be shifted. You have to reduce investment and replace it with something else. And, you know, if you're a small country, something else could be a trade surplus. But if you're a large country, the only something else is consumption. But here's where it becomes really difficult, because if you want to increase the consumption share of GDP, 
And China promised to do this way back in 2007 in a very famous speech by then Premier Wen Jiabao. He said that China is hugely imbalanced and we need to raise the consumption share of GDP, which, by the way, in, in 15 years, they managed to raise it one or two percentage points, a negligible amount. The problem is that if you want to raise it, you have to increase the household share of GDP. And if you want to increase the household share of GDP, by definition, you have to reduce somebody else's share. And that's the hard part. So one of Gershon Krohn's very close friends, another one of my favorite economists, Albert Hirschman, talked a great deal about this. And he said, the problem is that when you have a very successful growth model, certain groups benefit disproportionately from that model and they become disproportionately powerful. And the difficulty is when you need to shift the model, they tend to block the changes. So, Hirschman argued, it's very, very hard to shift from a very success, from a once successful rapid growth model to a very different growth model. And, and if you don't shift, what ends up happening is that you end up investing in projects that are less and less productive. Now, how can you tell when that happens? Well, debt is a really good way because when you borrow money to invest productively, your debt goes up, but your GDP goes up just as quickly by definition. That's, you know, that's the definition of productive investment. So Chinese debt rose very rapidly in the 1980s and 1990s, but we never talked about it because the debt-to-GDP ratio stayed very, very low. GDP rose just as quickly as debt. But around 2005, 2008, something changed, and we started to see borrowing, which was still borrowing for investment, was now no longer being matched by an increase in GDP. Debt started to grow more quickly, and GDP started to grow more slowly. So that's when we started to see a gap between the two, at, you know, to the point where China has one of the highest debt to GDP ratios for any developing country in history and the fastest growth of debt. So let me summarize here because I realize I'm going on quite a long time. The way this model seems to work is you have three stages. The first stage is very rapid, healthy growth. The second stage is very rapid, unhealthy growth with a surge in debt. And then the third stage, once you can no longer increase the debt, either you're forced to stop or you decide to stop, a, an adjustment, which is extremely difficult. So countries that follow this model include the Soviet Union. We forget that in the 60s, the Soviet Union was growing so fast that most people, including, you know, Nobel Prize winners like Paul Samuelson, figured the Soviet Union would overtake the U.S. economically sometime in the 1980s. Of course, that never happened. Japan also followed this model. And you'll remember in the 80s, everyone knew that Japan would overtake the U.S. within a couple of decades. Brazil, the first country to be called an economic miracle, followed this model in the 50s and 60s, and it ran into trouble in 82, 83. So we have a, a lot of history of this model. And what makes China different, if anything makes China different, is that all of the imbalances were taken to greater extremes.
So let me stop there. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, no. That, and that, that's a phenomenal explanation. Again, everybody that's on the space here, Michael, unfortunately, cannot do it through Twitter. So we're doing it streamed through through my account. But if any of you have any questions you want to engage, yeah, I'm happy to prompt you if you request. So, okay, it, it's, it's interesting to me, Mike, you, you mentioned the three stages, the, the rapid healthy growth and the unhealthy debt-fueled growth and then the adjustment. On the surface, a lot of that sounds like pretty much every economy, and I can certainly make the case that that's the way the U.S. Uh, sort of has played out here. But the consumption is obviously a differentiator. I think there's a perception in the U.S. that the reason why you don't have as much of a consumer-led economy in China is somehow cultural. From what I'm hearing from you, that's really not the case at all. It has more to do with the rapid growth and then the entrenchment of interests that are preventing that consumerism to take place. Absolutely. In the 1970s, the consumption share of China's GDP was quite high, but there were specific policies that drove the household share down. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And with the consumption share. Let's expand a little bit further on on these distortions, because anybody listening to this, I'm sure, would then say, OK, well, this is sort of inevitably what happens. You end up having a wealth gap and then corruption. And that's not a, a China specific story. That's sort of maybe a human nature story and evolution of the wealth and income basically go to just a smaller and smaller percentage of a population. But what are some of the longer term global implications on a, an economic powerhouse like China not being able to have consumers really take control, so to speak? Well, I, I want to correct one thing, Michael, and that is that there is the, the American problem of, of income distribution and then a very different Chinese problem of income distribution, although many people in China are, are, are trying to solve the American problem in China. I think this is not really well understood. But I think most people would agree that the U.S. has a terrible problem of income distribution. Income inequality is at you know levels that we saw last in the 1920s or in the 1830s, very high levels of income inequality. And that's a problem. In China, there are also very high levels of income inequality, but it's important to understand the difference. In the U.S., roughly 80 percent is household income, right? In Europe, it's 70 to 80 percent. In the rest of the world, it's anywhere from 65 to 80 percent. So if you have a problem in the distribution of income, it's probably, it's most likely a problem of income inequality. China has terrible income inequality. It's at U.S. levels or even higher. But that's not the problem. In China, household income is about 55% of GDP, right? What really differentiates China is, you know, in both countries, businesses retain around 20 to 25% of GDP. The difference is the government share. In the U.S. and in most, most countries, 
the government share of GDP is is roughly zero. I mean, the government earns revenues but passes them typically back to the household sector. Even in, in Scandinavian countries where the governments retain a high share of GDP, that's all passed back to the household sector. In China, the government share of GDP is 20 to 25 percentage points. It's not always easy to tell what is government and what is private sector, but that's a really high level. That's something you don't see in other countries. And in other countries where you do see high levels, 10 to 15 percentage points, it's all recycled back to the household sector, but not in China, right? So the problem of income inequality in China is not that the rich have too much and the poor don't have enough. That is certainly a problem. But the real problem is that local governments retain a very high share of GDP, which isn't being recycled back to the household sector. So if you want to fix the problem in the U.S., you have to fix the problem of income inequality. If you want to fix the problem in China, you basically have to transfer income from local governments to the household sector. And we're not talking about small numbers. So if you assume households retain 55% of GDP roughly, and governments retain 20 to 25, then, you know, just arithmetic, households retain twice the share that local governments do. Fair enough. If you want China not to be a normal country, but just a low, a normal low consumption country, you have to transfer at least 10 to 15 percentage points from the government to the household sector. So that means the government share drops to roughly 10 percentage points or less, and the household income share rises to 65 to 70 percentage points. So notice the ratio. We go from two to one to six to seven to one. And I would, you know, I would propose to you that you cannot engineer such a major redistribution of relative income without also implying a major redistribution of political power, of political institutions, political business, financial institutions, et cetera, et cetera. You need an awful lot of change to accommodate that. And that's what Albert Hirschman would have said is the hard part, that kind of institutional change. It's not just arithmetic. It's not just move, you know, dollars from A to B and you've solved your problem. It's that process of moving dollars from A to B requires such deep institutional change and so much opposition from the groups that benefited from the old model that it's always been very difficult to pull off. So that would be the the sort of state-owned enterprises versus those that are non-state-owned, which has always been an argument to not invest in China, because if you have local governments having substantial say in what are supposed to be private corporations, then we know that the objective isn't necessarily profit for shareholders, it's some other goal. And one of the things that's often said about that is the reason why China has such interest and controls a lot of different companies is because they are afraid of not having people employed right? Because there might be implications on societal unrest, so on and so forth. It doesn't sound to me like that's sort of what you believe is the real reason for why the local governments, the state-owned enterprises exist. It's, it's, it's more because of sort of the classic argument that people want to make more money and power wants to stay powerful. Yeah. And you know, 
there's there's a tendency to approach the question of you know whether government control of businesses is a good thing or a bad thing as really an ideological ideological question. And the answer is that in some cases governments do a bad job, in other cases governments do a good job. Just because profit isn't the number one concern doesn't mean that it's bad for the economy. There could be lots of other concerns. And what I would argue is that in the 90s and and, and the first decade of this century, what China needed to do was quite clear, right? It needed to build an enormous amount of infrastructure. It needed better logistics, better transportation. It needed huge manufacturing facilities. And under those conditions, the state probably does do a better job than the private sector. When the objectives are quite clear and you have the right kind of government, we've seen not just in China and South Korea and a number of other places, the government does a pretty good job, probably better than the private sector, of achieving those objectives quickly. And certainly in the case of China, you know, the only country that really compares with China in terms of four spectacular decades of growth is probably Japan beginning in the 50s. And, you know, Japan is technically a democracy, but we all know that economic policymaking was heavily centralized in in, in Japan. So in a way, it was quite similar. The problem is that once the, you know, the, the clear goal, right? So if I need to build a bridge, probably an autocratic system is better at getting that bridge done if we all agree it's got to be built. The problem is that once you have all of the the things that you obviously need, then what do you do next? That becomes much more complicated. And, you know, this is an argument development economists have a great deal. Some people say that, you you know, a country like China has to keep investing until it has as much capital per person as the capital frontier, which is the United States. And other people, and I'm one of them, would say, no, that's not the case at all. Every country has its own optimal level, depending on its institutions, business, political, financial, education, cultural, whatever you want to call them. And it's those institutions that determine how productively workers you know, can behave and how productively businesses can behave. So, you know, as I put it in my, in my last book, Switzerland isn't richer than, than, than Ecuador because Switzerland has more bridges. It's the other way around. Switzerland has more bridges because it's richer. And it's richer because it has the type of institutions that allow you to behave much more productively in Switzerland than you might in Ecuador. And if you believe that, then what that says is that up to a point, the state-led development can be very successful. But beyond that point, what you need is institutional reform. And a highly centralized state-led development process may not be, certainly the history suggests, it's not very good at the right types of institutional reform. And if I may, if I may throw one other thing, Mike, one of the things that really impresses me is that most countries that have this rapid investment-driven growth have an incredibly difficult adjustment that unwinds much of the growth. But there are exceptions. The exceptions are Japan and Germany after World War II, Belgium and France after World War I, 
And what's interesting is that if you take a very advanced economy and you destroy it during war, it is able to recover quite quickly and retain its old level. And I would say that maybe the reason is because, you know, war destroys the bridges and, you know, the farms and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily destroy the institutions that allow businesses and people to be so productive. So you believe that argument, what's really necessary at this stage is institutional reform. And that's a very different kind of reform. And some might argue a much more difficult kind of bottoms-up reform rather than a top-down reform. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, now there's, there's two directions I want to go with that. But first, let me reset the space. Again, my name is Michael Guy, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Special guest for the remaining half an hour, Michael Pettis. Make sure you follow Michael on Twitter, Michael X Pettis. And we'll also talk about the books that you should check out as well. But let, let's, you kept on using the word productivity there, Mike. And I want to, I want to hit on that in the context of this broader conversation with institutions because. It seems to me that, and I think this is probably well documented, the most non-productive aspect of China's economy has been all this real estate building. These ghost towns that were all over the place, and you don't often hear too much about it now, but obviously there's there's still longer-term implications on all of this building, which ended up not really resulting in anything except keeping workers employed. I want you to talk about, from your vantage point, the risks to the real estate market in China, because here in the States, that's always sort of a... Um, a boogeyman, so to speak, in terms of if you end up having a uh, an equivalent great financial crisis driven by another housing bus, but this time, you know, from China as opposed to the U.S. Right. Well, first, let me say, Michael, that I don't think China will have a financial crisis. A financial crisis, as I see it, is a balance sheet event. You know, you've got a mismatch between liabilities and assets, and then some liquidity event prevents you from rolling over your liabilities. So, you know, your asset side contracts while your liability side expands. Basically, a bank run is the classic financial crisis. And in the case of China, like in Japan, by the way, we never saw a financial crisis in Japan. It's very unlikely because you have a closed banking system and a highly controlled banking system. So if you look at the Chinese balance sheets, they look horribly mismatched. You know, we should have a crisis tomorrow. But they're not because the government, the regulators, are able to come in and restructure liabilities at will. We've had many of these mini crises over the last several years. The latest you know, cycle of, 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 of debt problems began in May 2019 with the intervention in Baoshang Bank. And we've had a whole series of them. But we've never had a crisis. Because what ends up happening is that the regulators force a restructuring of the liabilities. So, you, so what looks like a balance sheet mismatch, in fact, isn't the balance sheet mismatch. The, the liabilities can easily be restructured. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, the answer is it depends. The advantage of a crisis 
is that it's a very rapid resolution of, you know, misallocated capital and bad debt structures, et cetera, et cetera. The disadvantage is that in the short term, it's politically and socially very, very painful. So there are many economists, you know, I'm a huge disciple of Hyman Minsky, and Minsky would argue, and many other economists would argue, that a slow resolution of a debt problem in the long run is worse for the economy than a rapid resolution, as long as you don't have what are called hysteresis effects. If you have a financial crisis that leads to a, you know, a civil war, then obviously that's a worse outcome. But the point is, if you ignore the political implications, crises are more efficient than very, very long, drawn-out structures. And a classic case is Japan. You know, we forget that in the early 90s, Japan was about 17% of the world, which is where China is today. 20 years later, Japan was about 7% of the world. That's, you know, that should really shock us. That should be astonishing. And yet Japan never had a crisis. It had this very long, slow period in which it attempted unsuccessfully to rebalance its economy. So I would say that although we have a significant real estate problem in China, between 20 to 25 percent of all of the apartments in China are empty. They're, they're, they were purchased for really speculative purposes. I, I'm very nervous about using the word crisis because I don't think we're going to have a crisis. But there's no question that we have a real estate problem in China. The Chinese economy is about three quarters the size of the American economy or of the European economy. So if you believed American real estate was correctly valued, and I think most of us believe it's overvalued, but if you believe it's correctly valued, that suggests that Chinese real estate should be roughly three quarters the value of American real estate. But it's not. It's more than twice the value of American real estate. You'll remember that Japan, in the, at the late 80s, the total value of Japanese real estate was four times the, the value of American real estate. So what that suggests to me is that, again, unless you believe that American real estate is hugely undervalued, then you must believe Chinese real estate is overvalued. And that has really important implications. And I like to use the word that, you know, Galbraith came up with, bezel. You know, he talked about bezel in the 1920s and in the late 20s and early 30s. And to me, what bezel really means is the fictitious wealth that's temporarily created in markets. He referred to Ponzi schemes, but I refer to any type of fictitious wealth. And, and the point that he made was that when bezel is created, you have a moment of, of happiness because, you know, I take money away from you fraudulently. You don't realize it. So you think you're as rich as you were. And I think I'm richer because I have your money. And so collectively, we feel richer than we really are. And what Galbraith pointed out is that when that happens, that affects spending, that affects, uh, you know, irrational exuberance, all these other wonderful things through the wealth effect. The problem is that when you eliminate that vessel, when you eliminate that fictitious wealth, you reverse all of those wonderful feelings in which, you know, we, we thought we were collectively richer than we are. And so I think we have to go through this difficult adjustment. A lot of people in China feel, not surprisingly, quite rich. And they are quite rich 
as individuals, they'll own an apartment that, you know, in, in New York, which is not a cheap city, might be worth half a million dollars. But in China, that same apartment could be worth one and a half million dollars or whatever. And so as an owner of that apartment, you feel quite good. Your retirement is taken care of. You can go out and spend money. What happens when one day it turns out it's no longer worth one and a half million? It's worth half a million or 300,000 or whatever. That has to affect your economic behavior. Most obviously, you will cut back sharply on your spending. And if we all do that, then, of course, you know what the impact is. My spending is your income, and you get caught up in that, that, that downward spiral. So I think that's the real worry I have about the real estate. And, and, and when I tell you all this, I'm not telling you anything new. You know this about the U.S. You know this about Spain before 2009. You know this about Japan in the 80s. We've seen this story so many times that the only thing surprising about it is that every time we're surprised. Now, very, very well said. Now, now, there is something which I think is maybe an interesting variable, which I haven't I haven't thought through myself too much in the context of this idea that no matter what, you're going to have this kind of painful adjustment in China, which is that there is this growing theme, feeling, actions, whatever you want to call it, around deglobalization, right? That you're going to have more right. and more countries not rely on each other for natural resources, for products, for services, that things are more onshored or so-called friendshored. And that really only came into, into sort of the public eye, I think, over the last year or so because of the supply chain disruptions, obviously, as the catalyst. But how does the sort of broader trend of deglobalization, which who knows if it's going to stick around or not, right? But how does that how does that factor into China's adjustment from an economic perspective longer term? It's pretty important because if there's any country that really benefited from the last round of globalization, that has to be China. So a reversal of globalization will be quite difficult. And the reason it's difficult is because, and this, again, I want to stress, it's not just the China problem. This is going to be a problem in Japan, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in South Korea, and a number of other countries. And that is these countries have structural savings imbalances, right? Their savings is much higher than their domestic investment. So their total production is greater than consumption plus investment, right? There's two ways you can look at GDP. From the supply side, GDP is consumption and savings. And from the demand side, it's consumption and investment. And in a balanced economy, those two things are equal to each other. But in a country that runs persistent surpluses, the reason is that the savings rate is too high, which or the consumption rate is too low, which is because the household income share is too low, right? So what does that mean? You save more than you can invest, even if you have the highest investment rate in history, which China does, you still save more than that. And so you need to export those savings to countries, you know, that will import them, that will absorb them. Well, there are two types of countries that will absorb excess savings. One is the developing world. The developing world always needs investment. They have insufficient domestic savings. But there is a problem with the developing world, and that is if too much money goes into them, it creates all sorts of distortions. And then, of course, you get the debt defaults, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite risky, which is why roughly 10 to 15 percent of all of the excess savings goes to the developing world. Most of it goes to a different class of country. 
And basically, I would call those the Anglophone economies, the United States, England, Canada, and Australia. What do they have in common? They have really open capital markets. They have high quality governance, great deal of flexibility, you know, and a whole bunch of conditions that make them, you know, whether you are a rich oligarch trying to hide your money or a central bank looking for safety or a middle class person diversifying out of your economy, the best place to put it is in the U.S. And if it isn't in the U.S., it'll be in England or Australia or Canada. Those countries absorb roughly 80% of all of the excess savings. Now, this is not a favor, right? You, these countries don't need these savings. Nobody needs savings. The world is awash in savings. Until recently, the cost of capital was incredibly low. It's the surplus countries that need somewhere to put their excess savings, which is another way of saying that surplus countries need deficit countries. If we see a reversal of globalization so that, let's say, the United States decides that it wants to, it doesn't want to have such an open capital account. The capital account, by the way, only opened up in the 80s. Before that, we had capital controls. And let's say we don't want to have a totally open capital account. Let's say we don't want to run these big deficits. It's very difficult for these surplus countries to adjust because if, let's say, for whatever reason, the deficits of the world drop by a half, which is roughly what happened after the 2009 crisis. That means the surplus countries, their surpluses have to drop by a half. And remember, the surplus is the excess of savings over investment. So how do you reduce that excess of savings over investment? Well, either you bring savings down or you bring investment up. What you don't want is for savings to come down because of a surge in unemployment, right? Unemployed workers have negative savings. So if your current account surplus comes down rapidly, that hurts your export sector. They fire workers. Uh, the savings rate becomes negative for those workers. And so you adjust with a huge increase in unemployment. But you don't have many options. What China did in 2010 was they said, we don't want savings to come down through a rise in unemployment. So we're going to increase investment enormously. And they didn't need to, but in order, they didn't need that from, from a productive point of view. So in order to do that, they went on this investment screen, building all of this unnecessary stuff. And many people will argue that China's debt problems began at that time. Whether that's true or not is irrelevant. The point is that if countries like the U.S. decide to take steps sharply to reduce their deficits, Countries like Germany, Japan, China, etc., will be forced in a very difficult position because their surpluses are not the result of you know manufacturing prowess and efficiency and all this other nonsense, thrift, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're the result of their inability to absorb domestically everything that they produce because of their very low household income shares of GDP. So all of these countries will be forced into a very difficult position. They must either sharply increase the share ordinary households retain, which is politically tough to do, or they must accept a rise in unemployment, or they must go out and just build stuff, whether they need it or not. And, you know, I think that's the worry that countries like China have with this reversal of globalization. It puts them in a very difficult position where they worsen all of their domestic imbalances.
So that that kind of dovetails into your book from 2014, I believe it was, which is the great rebalancing trade conflict and the perilous road ahead of the world economy. I will tweet this out and the link if those are curious, if they're in the space to to take a look from from Amazon here. But that was that was published in 2014, Mike. I'm curious. Um, I assume a lot of what we've talked about is covered in that, and as well as more. But talk yeah. talk, talk about that 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 book, and if anything has really has changed over the last several years, especially post COVID. Is there anything in the in the dynamic which is new information that would maybe alter some of some of what you wrote about? Just just talk through that a bit. Well, the hardcover actually came out in 2013. And what I argued back then was that over the next 10, 15 years, we were going to see this reversal of globalization with all of the things that that implied. Now, why would we see that? One of the things that struck me is that, you know, globalization is not an inevitable process. We've had globalizing periods followed by, you know, reversal, reverse globalization periods. And one of the things that struck me is that whenever income levels, income inequality levels are extremely high, like in the 1890s and early 1900s or in the 1920s or more recently, that's when you start to get the anti-globalization movement. And what I argue in my 2020 book, which I co-wrote with Matthew Klein called Trade Wars or Class Wars, is that we argue that the kind of globalization we found ourselves stuck in and it's something that Keynes warned about, and so did Harry Dexter White in the Bretton Woods uh, agreements. They both were opposed to this. It's the kind of globalization where you become internationally competitive, not by increasing the productivity of your workers, but by lowering their income. You can do it through by lowering wages. You can do it by depreciating your currency. You can do it by undermining the social safety network. Lots of ways of doing it. But basically, the most competitive countries are the ones that reduce domestic income and so reduce domestic demand. The reward they get, you know, normally reducing domestic demand should slow down your economy, but the reward they get is a trade surplus. So they basically externalize their domestic demand weakness. And this in the 1930s, we call it beggar thy neighbor. So I take steps that reduce my contribution to global demand, but increase my international competitiveness so that basically I'm, I'm, I'm forcing that reduction in global demand onto my trading partners. And what we argue in our book, what Matt Klein and I argue in our book, is that that's a system in which the only way to keep demand high is for rapid increases in debt. And it's also a system because you become competitive by lowering wages, it has a tendency to force up income inequality. And, you know, the system began more or less in the 1980s. And, and I, you know, I don't think you'll be shocked when I tell you that since the 1980s, we've seen rapid increases in income inequality around the world and huge increases in debt. And what we argue is that this is a necessary function of our existing a global trading regime. There are other reasons for this too. We don't want to blame everything on trade. But what we argue is that once you know debt levels become extremely high and income income inequality levels become uh, extremely high, you tend to get a populist revolt against globalization, and you know in many cases perfectly justified, even when the populist revolt is badly handled and. 
you know, here I'm obviously thinking about Donald Trump and the way he mishandled it. But there is a genuine reason for this opposition to the globalized system. And I think that's what we're, you know, I think we're going to live through that for at least another decade. That's an interesting point, Michael, around sort of the, the way ineptly society ends up revolting against globalization. But there's this other dynamic which we're all living through, which is how inflation plays into that. Now, I had Leland Miller on one of these conversations several months back, China Beige Book. And I had asked him the question of how inflation looks in China and how the dynamics are different from the U.S., and he made it seem that, you know, inflation is nowhere near as big of a talking point or concern for China as this for developed economies and most other emerging economies. How does this kind of global inflation, which may not be impacting China as much, we can debate that, how does that factor into that thesis in that 2020 book? Well, you know, I agree with with Leland. And, and, and by the way, I'm, uh, you know, I, I I think very highly of the work China Beige Book is doing. It, it's sort of real numbers as opposed to fantasies. But, you know, the point that he makes, with which I agree, is that the structure of the Chinese economy is really different than the structure of the U.S. economy or the European economies. In those economies, the way we responded to COVID, which was partly a supply shock, but mostly a demand shock, was stimulus aimed at boosting demand. The Chinese keep talking about boosting demand, but they don't know how to do it. They have these very silly consumer coupons, which when you add them up are, you know, a couple of tens or a couple of hundredths of a percent of GDP. But basically, almost all of their stimulus, the only ones they know how to do, the ones they've been doing for 40 years, has been supply side stimulus. Keep pushing production, keep pushing production. So, you know, I believe that inflation is caused, you know, once you go through all of the, 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 the million explanations, inflation is called, caused when you see an expansion of demand relative to supply. In China, we don't have that. It's supply that's expanding relative to demand. So China is importing some inflation through commodity prices and a stronger dollar. But there's been very little inflation in China. In fact, in recent months, on a month-on-month basis, we've seen deflation. And I would argue that that's exactly what we should expect. The funny thing is many people say China has low inflation, so that gives it a lot more room for stimulus. And, you know, they're interpreting China as if it were the United States or, or, you know, or Europe or Japan, or, well, maybe not Japan, but the U.S. or Europe. And it's the opposite. China has low inflation because of excessive stimulus. And the more the stimulate, the lower inflation will be because it's all supply-side stimulus. It's not demand-side stimulus. That's a very good question and a very complicated question. One of the things that, you know, I'm I'm an ex-Wall Street guy, and like all Wall Street guys, I'm 100% in favor of the international unfettered flow of capital, except that I no longer am. It seems to me that the unfettered flow of capital internationally creates far more problems than it resolves. So I would argue that countries like the U.S. should take the lead in going back to the pre-1980s world, where we recognize that most international capital flows are not, you know, intelligent investors investing in plants and manufacturing in other countries. Most of the flow is speculative capital, flight capital, debt arbitrage, currency arbitrage, et cetera, et cetera. 
things that have nothing to do with productive investment, but that nonetheless have a very important impact on the economy. If the U.S. were to take the lead in, say, putting a simple tax on inflows, that would cause the U.S. capital account surplus to drop to basically whatever number we wanted it to be, which would also mean that the U.S. current account deficit would have to drop to that level, too. That would be very painful for the surplus countries because if U.S. deficits drop, you know, every dollar reduction in the U.S. deficit is a 50 cent reduction in the rest of the world's surplus, roughly. But ultimately, I think that's the direction that we're going to go in. And I think the U.S. should take the lead in going in that direction because I think the U.S. pays an enormous cost for the dominance of the U.S. dollar and, and, you know, and its role as the insurer of last resort and the consumer of last resort, which is the same, the, the same thing. In the case of what kind of institutional changes will China need, that's very hard to say because we don't know what are the right set of institutions. In fact, there isn't a right set. I would argue that the institutions that are very successful in the United States don't look at all like the very successful institutions in, say, Switzerland or in Japan. You know, lots of countries have different ways of being highly productive, very different sets of institutions. So, you know, what Albert Hirschman argued is that every country has to develop its own set. And we don't really know what those are. But I think what we might agree is that that's a bottoms up process. You, you put into place you know, transparent and a, and a rather strict legal system. And these sort of things develop around themselves. It involves institutional changes politically, which is why it's so difficult, as well as in terms of business institutions, financial institutions, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that we have in China, and we have it in Japan to a certain extent still, is that the financial system is administered. It's not a market system. So again, you know, people will say, China is lowering interest rates to expand credit, or China is raising interest rates to, to reduce credit. That's all nonsense. That's assuming that the Chinese monetary system looks like the American monetary system. And if there's one thing that we know is that there are very, very different systems. In China, the way you expand credit, in Japan in the 1980s, we used to call it window guidance, is that basically the regulators call up the banks and say, you need to lend more money into mortgages, or you need to make more car loans, or you need to lend more money to the energy industry, and the banks will expand credit. It's a very, very different kind of system. Now, that system has certain advantages when you have a clear goal, but I would argue that you know once you've caught up to your investment levels and you need institutional changes, one of the most important institutional reforms has to be with the banking system. And by the way, I'm not the only one saying this. A lot of you know the Chinese economists I admire most have been making this argument for years. China really needs much more of a market-based uh, financial system. The, the problem is that it's very hard to do that because it means upsetting a whole series of business, financial, and political relationships. But nonetheless, that's what you have to do. So I would leave it to a political scientist to argue what are the conditions under which you have these institutional changes. My only point is that without these institutional changes, 
it's very, very hard for China to continue developing because now the path of development is a very different one. I think that's a, that's a great way to end this Twitter space conversation. Again, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Michael Pettis. Again, he was not able to join through Twitter's app directly, so we did this in a kind of roundabout way. Michael, a real pleasure. I'm glad we could actually get this to work. This is the first time for me trying to do this jerry-rigged system of, uh, of making this go through Twitter here, but hopefully it was worthwhile. Thank you, Michael, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day if I don't see you. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.